0: Have a seat, and as you're taking a seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Find your way to verse 27 of that chapter, and we will uh, begin our time together. But let me voice one more prayer over us. Father, as we open our Bibles, would you open our eyes to see the beauty of the Savior in its pages. Holy Spirit, would you stir our hearts with the realities of your kingdom, of the kingdom of Christ, and, and give us grace to live in light of your redemptive rule over us. We love you and we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. There's was a man by the name of John Dixon who came to faith in Jesus. He, his life was changed by Jesus and he shares his story as to what type of means the Lord used to, to reach his heart and to reclaim his life from what he was into before that moment. And I want to share his words with you. He said, I came to faith in Jesus, as a result of a person's willingness to embody the mission of being a friend of sinners. One of the relics of Australia's Christian heritage is the once-a-week scripture lesson offered in many state high schools around the country. One of these scripture teachers, Glinda was her name, had the courage to invite my entire class to her home for discussions about God. The invitation would have gone unnoticed except that she added, if anyone gets hungry, I'll make." Hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. That'll draw a crowd. Food always brings people out. And then he goes on. As I looked around the room at all my friends, all skeptics like me, I was amazed that this woman would open her home and kitchen to us. Some of the lads were among the worst sinners in our school. One was a drug user and dealer. One was a class clown and a bully. And one was a petty theft with a string of charges to his credit. He said, I could not figure Brenda out. She was wealthy and intelligent. She had an exciting social life, married to a leading Australian businessman. What was she thinking, inviting us for a meal and discussion? At no point was this teacher pushy or preachy. Her style was completely relaxed and incredibly generous. When her VCR went missing one day, she made almost nothing of it, even though she suspected quite reasonably it was someone from our group for me, her open, flexible, generous attitude toward us sinners was, was the doorway into a life of faith. As we ate and drank and talked, it was clear this was no missionary ploy on her part. She truly cared for us and treated us like friends, or perhaps more accurately, like sons. As a result, over the course of the next year, she introduced several of us from the class to the ultimate friend of sinners named Jesus. Well, we see this friend of sinners, this Jesus at work in today's story. And we are reminded this morning of how he has befriended people like you and I. We've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke under a series titled A Story for Sinners and Sufferers. We recognize that the Gospel is about Jesus, but this story about Jesus is for people like you and I. Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's come to claim and to redeem people like you and I. And we see him going to the work in the life of a man named Levi, beginning in verse 27. We're told that after this, that is after a series of ministry engagements that Jesus had been a part of, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. I love how the story begins with Jesus seeing Levi, seeing him seated at his tax office. Now, Levi's described as being a tax collector and that was a big deal because a tax collector, that profession, that occupation carried with it some serious stigmas in the first century. This was a man who was employed by the Roman government, who was occupying the land of Israel at that time. They were viewed as an oppressive foreign force. And so for a Jewish man like Levi to go to work for them was a big deal. It represented him turning his back on his family, on his friends, on his very own people. This was a Jewish man employed by Jewish enemies and as a tax collector he was responsible for collecting taxes on duties such as the use of roads and docking in harbors he would tax exports and imports a lot of what he would focus on would have been the fishing industry which we'll get back to here in a moment the system of being a tax collector in the first century was wasn't very well regulated so it was an it was an occupation where people often strategized to uh, Exploit others and to profit themselves. It wasn't an occupation that was considered to be noble. It was an occupation that was fraught with all sorts of loopholes for exploitation and abuse and all those dynamics. There are some who study tax collecting in the first century Jewish world, and they compare that occupation to being like a loan shark today. And then they would go on to say, well, maybe a lot of tax collectors might have acted or functioned sort of like an oppressive mob boss who would force funds to be given more than necessary for people's livelihoods. The stigma that was attached to someone like Levi who went who would go to work for the Roman government, that stigma wasn't entirely unlike the stigma that was attached to Jews who functioned as Nazi informants during World War II. It was that type of perspective and portrayal. They were viewed as traitors of their own people. The way they were viewed, they were looked down upon by the Jewish people, sort of like the way our society would look down upon a pimp or a drug dealer or a human trafficker. These people who would exploit others for their own personal gain and for their own personal profits. Some of the writings that were coming out about the 2nd, 3rd century A.D., referred to as the Mishnah, these Jewish writings that comment on the teaching of the Old Testament and really relay a lot of Jewish tradition and history for uh, still today. These writings would oftentimes describe tax collectors in the same breath as describing thieves and murderers. That's how they were viewed. A tax collector was looked down upon. They They were despised people. Pharisees would often instruct that if anyone came in contact with a tax collector, it could render you ceremonially unclean so that you could not gather with God's people again until you went through a proper uh, ritual and routine of cleansing so that you could return to God's people. And what this means is that Levi was another type of leper. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the story of Jesus cleansing the leper, we said that this leper was an outcast. He was banished, alienated from engaging in the worship of God's people, and yet Jesus reached out and touched him and cleansed him and brought him in. Now, this leper, he was an outcast as a result of his sufferings, and, but what we see in Levi is a different kind of leper, a different kind of outcast. Levi was an outcast because of his sin, Because of the way that he would oppress people and exploit people. This is what caused him to be cast out of the mainstream Jewish society and rhythms of life. But no matter how far Levi was considered to be an outcast, he wasn't cast so far out that the grace of God couldn't see him. And this is what we're cued into here. We're told that Jesus saw Levi. He looked in his direction and saw this man sitting at the tax office. Now that word "saw" is charged. It's a powerful term, really getting after uh, this. It's, it's not a passing glance. This is Jesus locking eyes with Levi. This is a glare of grace that Jesus fixes upon this man as he is sitting in the very source of his sin and his dysfunction and his greed and his self-service and his self-ministry. Jesus saw him there, yet he saw right past it. And he saw this man created in the image of God, but recognizing that sin has marred that image. And so he saw deep into the heart and soul of this man and Jesus would be stirred with compassion, so much compassion that he would look past his sin and he would call him, hey, follow me. And this is the way the Savior looks at people like you and I. He doesn't look at us and lock on to our job titles or our family roles. He doesn't get obsessed with the mean names we've accumulated over the years or the wounds that we've self-inflicted upon ourselves as a result of our sin or doing things our way rather than his way. He sees past all of that past our self-hatred, past our self-condemnation, past the false praise that we might accumulate from others over time. He sees past that to the heart of image bearers who are struggling with sin and who are struggling with suffering. He sees us in that moment and he calls us, he says, follow me. Jesus is a friend of sinners and sufferers. He has come for outcasts, whether someone is outcasted, cast out as a result of things beyond their control, like the leper or those who were cast out as a result of things they can control, such as this man and his sinful practices. And so he calls Levi, he says to him, follow me. Now we don't know how many times he's had, if any, interaction with Jesus. No doubt he's heard about Jesus before this moment, since Jesus's reputation had been spreading. He's performing miracles. People are interested in this miracle working rabbi, this Nazarene who's doing things the world has never seen before, who's teaching with an unmatched authority, who's healing lepers who's raising paralytics he's doing all of these things and so he's likely heard about Jesus and now for Jesus to come to him and call him into his community that's a that's an amazing moment for this guy I wonder if he sat in his tax booth wondering how he was missing out on these incredible things being a part of what Jesus was doing and And yet he's cut off from that, and yet this Jesus would come to him and see him and say to him, follow me. I want you to come join this new community of God that I am building, this new kingdom that I'm bringing into the world. I want you, Levi, to be a part of it. And this call would have an amazing effect on Levi's life. He says to him, follow me, and then notice what happens We're told in verse 28, so leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow Jesus. An amazing impact the call of Christ would have upon him. He left everything and began to follow Jesus. Now, what we see being illustrated here is what goes down in the heart of every person who responds to the call of Christ. Every person who hears Jesus say, follow me, and the response given is one of faith, one of trust, one of obedience. This response that illustrates there are things that you leave behind when you follow Jesus. There's an old way of life that you check at the door as you enter the kingdom of God. This is what the Apostle Paul was getting after in Ephesians chapter 4, where he describes this dynamic and how it plays out in every believer's life that there are things we leave behind and there are things that we step into. This is what he writes. He says, But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. And here it is to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity and the truth. This is what you're seeing being illustrated in Levi's movement from his tax booth to follow Jesus. This is what goes down in the heart of every person who puts their faith in Christ, responding to the call of Christ. We put off a former way of life and we step into a new way of life. We check our way for Jesus' way, which is what the kingdom of God is all about. As we said a few weeks ago, that the kingdom of God is what life looks like when Jesus gets his way. And so when Christ calls you to himself, what is happening? Well, you're saying, okay, I'm going to stop doing things my way, and I'm going to follow Jesus' way. I'm going to get behind him. He's my leader. He's my Lord. I'm going to walk in his way. This is what Levi literally does, and this is what you and I in different ways literally do too. Now, this doesn't mean that if you become a Christian, Jesus is always calling you out of your professions and out of your occupations, out of your current jobs. This doesn't mean that you step out of the world and you cut ties with everything that you've known externally before hearing the call of Christ, but it does mean you go about your jobs and you go about your relationships. You go about your engagement in the world around you differently. No longer are you... Living your way, you are now living his way, which is a better way. But there are things you have to leave behind to follow Jesus. There are things you have to check at the door upon coming to Christ. This means some of you might not advance as far in your company because you are to leave behind business practices that treated people like commodities rather than image bearers practices that might have been explo- exploitative of others. You, you're checking that stuff at the door, and that might mean you miss out on something. It also means you might not advance as far because you want a balanced life. And so you want to balance your job and your family and your friendships. You want to balance your engagement in The life of God's people and being involved in what he's doing so you want a balanced life not a distorted unbalanced life and as a result you might miss out on some things now there are different things this this plays out in our lives in different ways but one thing is always true you always leave behind self-rule you always leave behind calling the shots and you step into a relationship with Jesus where he is now ruling, he is now re- reigning, he is now lording over. But as you do so, as you leave things behind and you step into a relationship with Jesus and he begins calling the shots, you will find at the end of your days, looking back on your life, that anything you left behind, anything you left behind was ultimately worth it. Because what you gain far outweighs what you give up when you hear the call of Christ and you follow him into a life of friendship and a life of fellowship, a life of missional engagement, a life of purpose and passion, a life that looks like the kingdom of God. This is what you step into. And with that comes freedom. Freedom to be who God originally created you to be. Freedom to do what you were designed to do, which is to live in fellowship and relationship with your creator. It's a remarkable experience of freedom when you respond to the call of Christ, no longer being shackled to the sources of your sin like that tax booth Levi was stuck in before Jesus saw him and said, hey, follow me. It's not unlike that kid who gets his hand stuck in the cookie jar and mom walks in and he's stuck there. He can't get out. He can't get free. But the reason he can't get out, the reason he can't go free is because he won't drop the cookie. It's hard for a seven-year-old to drop the cookie. But as long as his hand is wrapped around that cookie, it's not coming out of the jar. And so in order for him to find freedom, what must he do? Well, he's got to drop the cookie. This is essentially what we do when Christ, the call of Christ, comes into our lives and he's saying, Follow me. There are cookies that we're holding on to, and we're stuck in places and spaces that Jesus wants to set us free from, not because cookies are inherently bad, but because of the bondage that and the control that things like that might have over our lives. And so salvation, has been it's been said that salvation isn't a Simplistic thing. Salvation is simple, but it's not easy. It's hard to drop a cookie. It's hard to leave things behind. It's hard to stand up from the sources of comfort and security that you have grown comfortable with and to move through this life in a different kind of way. That is a difficult thing to do. But I assure you that you, what you gain in following Jesus will always prove to outweigh anything you give you give up. This is Levi's story. This tax collector who hears Jesus say to him, follow me, and he leaves everything behind. This booth that was the source of so much luxury in his life, the source of so much comfort in his life, the source of so much prosperity in his life, yet he's now leaving it behind because he knows that it's sort of embedded into a way of life that's more his way than Jesus' way. And so he begins to walk with Jesus And this new way of life, this new self that's being given to Levi, you see it at work immediately as he begins to live out what might be called the call of the church. You begin to see some incredible things going down in Levi's household immediately as he begins to follow Jesus. You look at verse 29. It says, then Levi hosted a grand banquet. He threw a party. He opened his home and and a party broke out, a grand banquet for him, that is Jesus, at his house. And then you go on. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with, him, with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So as Levi begins to follow Jesus, he starts to join Jesus on the mission that Jesus is about this mission and ministry to sinners and sufferers a lot like Levi. So that this grace, this calling that Jesus has experienced that is changing his life, that that call might now be extended through his life into his areas of influence in his social circles, so that more and more people might be brought into the kingdom of God and experiencing all that Jesus is calling us into. Levi begins to discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life, and he wants to expose as many people as possible to that reality. And so, what you find in Levi's story is he literally changes tables. At one moment, he's sitting at a tax booth, this table that was designed to serve himself. In the next moment, he's stepping into a different kind of table, a banqueting table, where Jesus is present, and a lot of people like him are too. Only this table is no longer enlisted so that he might serve himself. This table is being enlisted into the service of Jesus and his kingdom. He literally changes tables. No longer serving himself, he is now serving the people around him. This is what comes with a new way of life. This is what the way of Jesus is all about. Now, one of our core values here at the Hallows Church is illustrated and embodied and kind of portrayed through the image of the table we love the image of the table and what the table represents because of stories like these. Because of these moments where Jesus' kingdom is bursting out in a banquet, bursting out in a party, bursting out at a table. And this is where Levi's life goes. His table, he changes table and now he tables and now he finds himself sitting at a table of grace. It's a remarkable table of grace when you consider all the people that are coming over. The people that he's opening his house to were those that were despised and looked down upon by the religious elite. It was those that were often judged by society and cast out of the mainstream Jewish life and the Jewish world. Levi's opening his home and he's bringing them all in as his table is becoming a place of grace. It's a beautiful thing. There's a guy by the name of Robert Munger who once said the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. You know, this is what the church is. The church is full of people who need a Savior. They're full of people who are struggling with sin and suffering and yet finding Jesus' way to be far more life-giving than our way. And so we come together not because we are perfect, but because Jesus is perfect precious. And so the table, the, the community of faith, the kingdom that God is building in the world is a, is comprised, it is occupied by a table of grace that pulls all types of people together. But not only is it a table of grace, it's a, it's a table of community. Levi didn't cut ties with the friendships he had before he started following Jesus. Instead, he brought Jesus to bear on the friendships he had these people that he used to run with, these people that he used to collect taxes alongside, they probably conspired together to make, to maximize their profits, even to the exploitation of others. Now he's bringing them into the presence of Jesus. It's a remarkable picture of community. Tax collectors and sinners. Now, one of the remarkable things about this moment is that Jesus is there, but so is his disciples Peter, James, and John, and others. Now, What was Peter, James, and John doing when Jesus said to them, follow me? They were cleaning their fishing nets. They were cleaning their boats. Why? Because they were fishermen. Think about the kind of community that's forming in Jesus in Levi's house. You have a tax collector who exploited people like Peter, James, and John, now feasting and fellowshipping together at that table. That's community. This is why we value the table because the table has a way of turning enemies into friends and friends into family. This is the kingdom of God touching down on earth and appearing here as it is in heaven. When reconciliation is happening, when friendship among strangers is occurring and family is being built, this is what's going down here. See, so you have fishermen and tax collectors sharing a meal together. Jesus would do something very similar with some of the other disciples he would call. There was a man by by the name of Simon the Zealot who he would also say, hey, follow me. And Simon the Zealot would follow Jesus. Now, as a zealot, he hated tax collectors. Zealots were staunch Jewish nationalists who despised anyone who would side with Rome or befriend Rome or anything of that sort. And yet Jesus had the audacity to say, Simon, follow me. Levi, follow me. I'm putting you together in the same missional community. You might not like it at first, but you're gonna grow in it. It's <laughs> so one of the things about stepping into a church is you don't get to pick and choose who else is gonna be a part of it. The moment you become selective about who you will be in community with this is the moment you become more like a Pharisee and less like Jesus. And so we hear this in this moment as Levi's table is becoming a place of community, but it's also becoming a place of mission. So you have grace, you have community, you have mission all bursting out here as Levi is no longer serving the agenda of Rome. He's now serving the agenda of the kingdom of God. You have Levi bringing people into proximity with Jesus. And that's one of the things that makes the community we cultivate as followers of Jesus different from the types of community that is cultivated in other pockets and places in Seattle. We don't just cultivate community. We cultivate community in service of grace and mission. This means when we're seated at our table with other people who are struggling like us, we point them in Jesus' direction because that's where we found life. That's where we found hope. That's who changed our life, and we believe he is able and willing to change other people's lives as well. And so we turn our tables into places of mission where we not just connect the social dots in our lives, we connect the social dots in our lives with the beauty of Jesus. And so we open our mouths and we tell his story. We open our mouths and we tell the story of how Jesus has changed us. Bearing witness to the beauty of the kingdom of God. Now, as you do that, it will require some risk because not everyone will respond favorably to your table being a place of grace, community, and mission. Not everyone will be supportive of the fact that your life is being changed by Jesus And it's now being the door of your life is being flung wide so that all types of people might be a part of it. And you're opening yourself up to all types of relationships, inviting them in, sharing life with, and being a person of grace, and being a person of community, and being a person of mission. Not everyone will respond positively, which you see right here in this story. The moment Levi's life started changing and the moment he began to connect the dots in his life and he began to live in service of the kingdom of God, he started being criticized. He started being judged. Onlookers began to label him with words like tax collector and sinner. They began to call him names, not unlike the names that we accumulate in service to Jesus in our city either. Because you have these Pharisees and scribes, these self-righteous men looking down upon this scene and judging it. But I don't think Levi gave them a second thought. I think Levi was so enamored with the presence of Jesus and the party that was taking place. All this criticism being launched in in his direction and in Jesus' direction by the Pharisees and scribes just began to roll off their back. I believe the gospel gives us tough skin because we enjoy Jesus so much. Some of you need to learn to enjoy Jesus more so that your skin can thicken. Because you're too easily knocked over by the criticism of those who are outside of the kingdom of God. Those who can't see the beauty of the of the stained glass window because they are on the outside of it but you being on the inside of the kingdom responding to the call of Christ you see the beauty of the stained glass window from the inside and as you're enamored with that beauty it doesn't really matter what the people on the outside are saying about you so the judgment and the criticism the name calling the attempt to cancel you from friendships and social settings it shouldn't really impact you if you're enamored with the beauty of Jesus and you're aware of what Jesus is doing in your life. And so Levi doesn't engage the Pharisees. He doesn't engage the scribes. He doesn't go to Jesus's defense. He doesn't defend himself in this moment. Instead, Jesus speaks up because Jesus is the great advocate. Jesus defends us not just from Satan. He defends us from self-righteous people too. And so he steps up and he clarifies in verse 31, he replied to the Pharisees, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so this complaint that the Pharisees and scribes are launching, Jesus disarms, he dismantles by clarifying the nature of his call. Look, I've not come for people like you, people who do not believe they need me. You're blind. You don't see the reality of things. I've come for people who do see the reality of things, people who are aware of their needs, who know that they're not on the top of things but are on the bottom of things. And so I've come not to call the the healthy, but the sick who who need the doctor. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, One of the biggest hindrances to people entering the kingdom of God isn't the gross sins that get all the press. The biggest impediment to people entering the kingdom of God is self-righteousness. And there's a religious form of self-righteousness that you see playing out in the life of the Pharisees where they want grace from God, but they don't want to give grace to others. But there's also a secular form of self-righteousness when we insist on our way being good and our way being better than Jesus' way being glorious and Jesus' way being best. Often what hinders people from entering the kingdom of God isn't gross sins, it's self-righteousness, it's it's this spirit of, of pride, of not seeing need and willing to humble ourselves before this king. One of the things that Nietzsche, Nietzsche said a lot of things, the German philosopher back in the day, he said lots of things, but perhaps the truest thing he ever said was when he critiqued Christianity as being a faith or a religion for the weak. He perhaps never said anything truer because that's exactly what Christianity is. It's what the gospel is. This is a faith for the weak. It's a faith for people who are willing to humble themselves before the grace of God, recognizing their need for the Savior and then coming to him for help. And so this is what we do. This is how our tables and our lives become places of grace and community and mission is because we step into a relationship with Jesus where we're feasting with him and fellowshipping with him all the days of our life because this is ultimately what the kingdom of God is about. I don't know if you've noticed how prominent the themes of feasting and fellowship are throughout the story of the scriptures. But if you think back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden, what was going down in the Garden of Eden were two things, feasting and fellowship, and fellowship. God created Adam and Eve in his image. He put them in the Garden of Eden. He filled it with all sorts of luscious fruit and food and vegetation and life. Food that was provided not just for their their livelihood, but food that was provided for their pleasure because God is good. And they were free to enjoy it all, to partake of this feast in the Garden of Eden. There was only one tree that they had to refrain from, one tree that they should not eat from because that was a tree that served the self. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you know the story that Adam and Eve eventually succumbed to the temptation to partake of that tree, and when they did, everything broke, and the feasting and the fellowship that they enjoyed with God was severed, and they were alienated, exiled from Eden. And the world became what it is now, filled with people, sinners and sufferers who are struggling their way and many of whom are yet aware of Jesus' way. But God would make his way clear very quickly. Because immediately after they were, they were alienated from Eden, the Lord gave them a promise that there was coming a Messiah. The seed of the woman would come and he's going to make all things right. And he makes this promise and then the rest of the Old Testament unfolds according to that passion, that promise, that commitment. And as you have traced that story all throughout the scriptures, you're going to see feasting and fellowship present in every moment of redemption that God executes in the world. You think about the book of Exodus. What happened the night of the Passover when the people of Israel were called out of Egypt to walk with God to the promised land? Well, they slaughtered a lamb and they applied the blood to the doorpost. Their lives were spared. And then every year after that moment, they feast and fellowship together. They commemorate that redeeming act that God brought in Egypt. And then after they stepped out of the Egypt, having that moment, they start walking with God through the wilderness and they're going where? They're going to the promised land, which is described as a place filled with milk and honey. That the promised land is a place where God's people will feast and fellowship with God. That's where the Lord was leading them to, feasting and fellowship. You get to the book of Luke, you come into the New Testament, you see Jesus' ministry and what is he doing with people? Constantly, he's feasting and fellowshipping with them. He's showing people what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like feasting and fellowship. It's being together and enjoying life, enjoying one another. It's reconciliation. It's pleasure. It's joy. It's goodness. This is what Jesus models time and time again throughout his ministry. You get into the church. And you have the church doing the same thing. You study the history of the church and how it started, and over the first few centuries of of the church's existence in the world, many of which took the place of house churches, where the table featured as kind of central to the church's gathering as the church would gather and they would feast and they would fellowship, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the to the fellowship and to prayer. That's what the church did. And the church made a huge impact over the first four centuries of her existence, turned the world upside down through the ministry of feasting and fellowship, the church being friends of sinners, leveraging the table to be a place of grace, a place of community, and a place of mission. And then you come to the end of the story, you get into Revelation chapter 20 and 21, and what do you see there? Well, you see a new heaven and a new earth coming down, and we are told elsewhere about this marriage supper of the Lamb that will take place then. That feasting and fellowship will reach its climax when the kingdom of God is consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. Feasting and fellowship is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Enjoying God, enjoying each other, and loving sinners and sufferers like us. Jesus would refer to this day in Luke chapter 13, verse 29, when he speaks of this coming feast and this moment of fellowship that we will all enjoy when all is said and done. Luke 13, 29, Jesus says, They will come from east and west, from north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God, meaning sinners and sufferers from all over the world are gonna sit at the table of Jesus when all is said and done. And so what do we do in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, we give people glimpses of that day. This is what it means to pray. Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us glimpses, manifest the reality of your redemption right here, right now so that people might taste it have their appetites wetted so that they might long for the coming kingdom of God and its consummation. This is where we live. This is the life that we are called into as we follow Jesus together. And there's a way in which you and I commemorate this feasting and fellowship dynamic every week. Every week we partake of the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is is a little mini feast. It's a mini feast, but it's a meaningful feast as we partake of this meal together every week, thinking about the body that Jesus gave for us and thanking him for the blood that was shed so that our sins might be forgiven, so that we might be reconciled to our God, that our lives may be brought into the kingdom. It all happens because of what Jesus has done for us.